Stanford University. And the Stanford Graduate School of Business. I want to start, Ron, with the following. As Garth said, you've invested in over 500 companies. Now, if you take the 15-year span that you've been investing, um, that's about one company every six days. So the question I have is, how do you organize? I haven't heard it stated that way. How do you organize yourself to be able to uh, invest in so many companies? And in in general, what's your strategy for investing? So uh, like the the introduction said, um, the, the, the best decision I ever made from a macro point of view, was back in 1994 when I teamed up with Ben Rosen and we had this crazy thought. We were both as gray-haired as I am today uh, in 1994, and we said, let's only invest in this thing we call the Internet. Um, So one of the reasons that, that I attribute my success to is that I've stayed only focused on the internet. I haven't gotten distracted with healthcare or green tech or anything else. Now, since 1994, the internet has completely exploded and we could almost be criticized for not focusing on some sector of the internet, which in fact, we do have a sector focus, but we take a portfolio approach where we try and invest in the top 10 companies in each of these sectors and hope that one of those 10 you know, becomes the company that blossoms because you don't know that the day you invest. The venture capital community tends to invest in one company per sector and hope that that company's gonna win. Uh, and that's a more rifle-focused approach where my approach is more portfolio. I am now concerned I haven't been answering your question. So can no, you, a, can you? That's a, a, a good way to work your way into it. But, uh, can but you restate it though? Other, so the other part wanna... of it is, uh, this is one company every six or seven days. I mean, so how do you organize yourself to just be able to process that many deals? You answer sort of a strategy question. Right. Yeah. And I wanted to make that point. Because so now that's out of the way. Because as far as I know, you, <laughs> only had one or two people working with you at a time? Well, actually, it's, it's, it's been a lot more than that. But um, if you go back to 1994, it was me and Ben Rosen for a couple of years. And when we got to investing in one company a month, I said, uh-oh, you know, we can't process the deal flow. And especially... We don't have the time to do the due diligence on the deal flow. So that's when we formed Angel Investors LP in 98, which was a $25 million fund. And then remember, this is the height of the internet. So, uh, you know, people were investing very rapidly in internet only funds. So we did a fund the very next year, which is kind of unusual. 1999, we raised a $175 million fund. Now, in that fund from uh, 98 to, let's say, 2003, we had a staff at our peak of uh, 13 people. In other words, we charged a 3% management fee. We capped 
the GP salary at 300k each. But a 3% management fee gave us enough money to hire a lot of people to manage that huge portfolio. Of the 500 companies I've invested in, 225 of them were at this peak of the internet, 98, 99. So at that time, we had a huge staff. When the bubble burst, uh, we actually very quickly reacted when the stock market crashed in uh, May of 90, uh, May of 2000. And I told all of our staff, hey, we're not investing anymore. This is going to be awful. Everyone go find another job. And we basically triaged that 225 company portfolio, waited for Google to go public. Uh, Ask Jeeves had already gone public in that portfolio, which gave it some return. But Google was the monster return. And the venture investing and angel investing is a hits business, in my opinion. But I, I have lots of facts to prove it. Uh, because in the 98-99 funds, uh, and I'm back to not answering your question, I'm sorry, but I'm thinking of interesting stuff. 78%, 78% of those 225 companies went out of business. That is how traumatic the, uh, the bust, the, uh, you know, the, the bubble bursting in 1999, how traumatic that was. Because most of the person, people in this room don't remember that. Uh, but if you were me, I never believed the market would come back the way it has. Uh, and Google really helped bring it back. We were fortunate enough to be investors in Google. And that basically paid for those funds. Um, so, and we ultimately sold those funds, the balance of that portfolio, after Google went public. So now we're in 2003, 2004. Start, I started angel investing on my own again. Once, now at that time period, I was all alone. And then uh, I couldn't keep up with the due diligence because startups started to percolate. You know, from 2000 to 2003, 4, there wasn't a lot of startup activity. Uh, there was no money for it. There was no appetite for it. I mean, this valley was very dry at that point. Um, but I started investing again in 2003. And when the deal flow got active enough, uh, I teamed up with a fund called Baseline, which helped me process the deal flow. Up till two years ago, when we got really excited about real-time data. And we got so excited about that, we spun off a baseline and we started SV Angel. SV Angel today, so baseline had about four people. SV Angel has five people. So my whole theory about investing is if you have great deal flow and you get great deal flow by helping entrepreneurs, getting a good reputation, and then they come back and then they recommend you. That's how you get good deal flow. But that's easier said than done. But once you get the great deal flow, you have to process it uh, and do due diligence on it. And that's what you need four or five people for. We see five new deals a day, all from people and email addresses that we know. Um, and we turn down one out of 30. I'm sorry, we only invest in <laughs> one out of 30 that we see.
You were about to get a lot of emails. So that's, yeah, yeah. That, that's 29 turndowns for everyone that we invest in. And these are all people that we know. So that's the hard part of the business. But that's a lot of work, you know, doing the due diligence because uh, you want to invest in the winners. So, Ron, let's go back to, uh, to Google and because uh, talk about interesting examples. That's certainly an interesting example. And can you tell us a little bit about, A, uh, when, you, when you got involved with them and more generally, what stage do you like to, to become involved in companies? And then sort of how did that work with Google? So we like to invest at the very seed stage, one, two, or three uh, co-founders. Usually at that point, the three people are all co-founders of the company. Uh, and that's when we like to invest. And that's the vast majority of our investments. Google definitely was in that bucket. Um, Google uh, started in 1997. Uh, no, probably 98, now that I think about it. I found out about the company at, at uh, Vivek Ranadive's holiday party in December of 98, and I ran into D David Cheriton, who's a professor uh, at Stanford, and David was an investor in the angel funds. And the angel funds had all investors in them who were unique to the internet. It was internet entrepreneurs, or Stanford professors, and at that party, and, and it was funny, it was a black tie party, and I had never seen David Sheraton in a black tie. I don't think I've seen him in one since. If you know David Sheraton, he's not prone to black tie. Uh, and I, I said, hey, there's gotta be something going on at Stanford. I wanna know what it is, and you know, give me the name of a company that I can go home with. And he said, oh, there's a really interesting one called Backrub. Um, and that was the name of Google in the very, very beginning, was Backrub. And I said, well, what does it do? And he said, well, it's, search qual it's quality search based on page rank and relevance, and page rank as determined by popularity by users. Um, and that summer before, we had just taken Ask Jeeves public. So even though I'm not an engineer, I knew, the, I knew the search space pretty well. And I said, my God, I, I want to meet that company tomorrow. And he said, oh, no, no, they're not ready to see any funders yet. Because they had already gotten the money from Andy Bechtelsheim, Ram Ram, Jeff Bezos, and uh, David Cheriton. There were four people that did that original angel round. Um, so they had enough money. Uh, but he, I badgered him, and th literally three months later, he said, okay, they're ready to meet you. So we went in and met Google on University Avenue, and it was probably no more than six people. Uh, and I brought one of my partners who was technical. I always hook up with somebody who's really technical. Um, and we decided ahead of time, because of our knowledge of Ask Jeeves, and because of what we heard about this search engine, we, we felt like this was something big. So I said, I'll keep them busy talking, and after the demo, we'll ask them, you know, can you just keep playing with it? So I talked to Larry and Sergey, Bob Bozeman, uh, you know, kept playing with the search, and halfway through the interview, he just nodded to me, like, you know, go for it. This thing is awesome. 
And so I said to Larry and Sergey, hey, we want to invest like right now. And they said, well, we're going to get the, the big VCs first, but maybe you can help us close the VCs. And Sequoia was one of the VCs they wanted to invest because of Sequoia's partnership with Yahoo. And Larry and Sergey were smart enough to say, hey, we're going to need distribution for this search engine. We're going to want to deal with Yahoo. Let's go get the VC who invested in Yahoo to invest in Google. And so they basically said, you help us close Sequoia and you'll get an allocation. And so that's how we got an allocation in, in, uh, in Google. So, that's <laughs> so you use the term badgery. Oh, but, uh, here's, a, here's a cute story. Uh, no, no. So this getting the VC round done was not easy because it was KP for AOL and Sequoia. They wanted two VCs. VCs don't like doing deals together, especially at the height of the internet. And so Sequoia and KP didn't want to work together. And we kept saying, hey, if you don't work together, maybe we'll just do an angel round. And Larry and Sergey, I could tell we're getting really serious about this. So we called KP and Sequoia one day and we said, guys, Neither one of you are going to get this because Larry and Sergey are saying, hey, if these guys don't hurry up and work together, we'll just do a big angel round. And they asked me, can you raise $10 million in an angel round? And I said, for this, you bet I can. Um, and uh, Sequoia and KP called me in a Starbucks coffee shop in Foster City in 1999. I said, great. And they, they agreed to work together, which meant I was going to get a lower allocation. But better for the company, because getting Google and Sequoia behind you early is the best thing you could do. So we were super happy for Larry and Sergey. But I hung up the phone and I said to my wife, this was a historic phone call. And she laughed and she goes, oh, all your calls are historical. <laughs> and I said, no, 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 no. I want you to really remember this one. Because this is going to be a huge company. And she, she does remember to this day that I, I said, this one is going to be huge. And we kept telling our LPs for years. You know, we could talk about Google all day. We should probably stop. But, but what a hot technology Google had. And in the early days of Google, investors didn't get it. They said, isn't it just like the rest of them? And we'd say, no, go use it. It's actually relevant. It delivers relevant answers, and therefore it's going to be a huge company. And we don't know how, but it will be. And sure enough. You know, you touched on another thing that many of our students here at GSB ask about, and that is, so if I'm not an engineer or a scientist, um, can I be involved in technical companies? Now, you are a political science major. Correct. And um, so uh, you said you always get somebody to help you, but take it back one step. How do you even know who to get? And, and have you ever felt disadvantaged because of a lack of a technical background? Well, I haven't felt disadvantaged because of not being technical myself, because every step of the way, because I know I'm not an engineer and I'm not a PhD, I've always made sure for every fund that we had a very technical person that we can turn to who can actually do a code review if they have to. Usually they can get what they need just by talking to the entrepreneur. But um, so a non-technical person can definitely succeed. Most of our founder teams, if they have four people, 
The fourth person is usually the business person, biz dev, marketing person. And so if you're not technical in a founding team, you can be that person. So let me press you on that because I know one of the things you do is you get involved with the teams uh, above and beyond just investing. So, so when you do that, um, you're, helping, you're helping to uh, organize a technical company. Do you ever run into problems there? Well, no, because we've done our due diligence through our technology person that we have at the time. So, in terms of your advice to them? Oh, 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 oh. well, in terms of our advice to them, our MO is we get involved at inflection points during the company's history. And by inflection points, I mean we help them get a great angel syndicate once we decide to invest. We lead them completely through the VC round, helping them pick the VCs, back-channeling to the VCs, getting the valuation right, getting the VC round done. And then uh, when traction happens, then companies need lots of distribution. We help companies get their distribution. So if you need to deal with Google, Yahoo, IAC, AOL, we'll go get that to happen with the management of those companies. Um, we will also help on recruiting. We'll help with management turmoil. Every company has management turmoil at, at some point in their history. But when those inflection point events aren't happening, we are not there. So we're like the doctor on call. We don't take board seats. We only get involved when the entrepreneur needs our help. So what I mean, the, the, the long-winded answer is, we don't get involved in product strategy. We don't get involved in engineering decisions. When we invest in the entrepreneur, we assume he or she knows the product and the engineering and, and the code base because we don't get involved in that. And we don't want to be involved in that because some, a lot of our companies end up morphing into each other's spaces. Uh, today we're in Gowalla and Foursquare, for example. We're in Blippi um, and Swipely. So we don't get into product strategy. We don't want to. Uh, so you, you know, we, we just want to help you know, with those rifle shot company-defining events. And it's funny, when our companies get to liquidity and, and they call up and you know, we, we're congratulating each other, so many of them lately say, it's so weird, you were only involved in our company four times for like a week each. But now when I look back at what we did, those are the four things that got us, that made us big. You just swooped in, helped us, and got out because we've got to go help the other company. Well, one thing that I think that turning this subject now to sort of the angel community that might be useful for the group to hear is uh, it's pretty clear that the angel community has a variety of different ways in which they interact with companies, both in terms of funding and also in terms of, of helping out. Um, so how do you, uh, so, so if you just think about the angel community, um, are you at one end of the spectrum, and, and what, what's the other end of the spectrum in terms of the way in which you interact with companies? Well, there's, you know, if you take the angel investing category, because it is becoming a, a category, there, there are people 
who invest just as an individual angel themselves, and they usually do, you know, one to five investments a year. I personally think that's a hard way to do it. I think you need to build a portfolio of companies. So somewhere in that portfolio is the winner. Um, and then there's, there's angel groups like ours. SV Angel is a $20 million fund. Uh, the managing general partner is David Lee. I don't want to be a fiduciary, so David Lee, an ex-Googler, uh, lawyer and engineer, is the managing partner of SV Angel. And our investor base is all Internet entrepreneurs themselves, just like the angel funds were. So it's the founders of many of the great companies in Silicon Valley. And they contribute to a lot of the deal flow. So that's, you know, SV Angel's kind of a friends and family uh, fund. And then you have this new group called Super Angels or Micro VCs. And these are people who have institutional money behind them. And they act much more like a fiduciary. And uh, I, I, I don't like the term super angel. A super angel because they go and raise this money from the same people that Sequoia and KP and everyone else raise their money from. I think super angels are just small VCs. The bucket of money they have is smaller. But they're actually competing with Sand Hill Road, as far as I'm concerned. And it's just how big the bucket of money is that, that you have. Um, what I think you need to look at is which one of the partners in these firms is going to add value to your company. Because raising money today um, is, it, it, hey, nothing's easy. You know, starting a company is not easy. That's why I've been quoted, and it's true, that I think anyone who has the guts to start a company should get funded because it, it is not easy. It's a ton of work. But, but getting funded, hopefully, if you've got a great idea, you'll get multiple people wanting to invest. And then it's about picking the partner in the fund that you're getting money from who you think is going to add value, who has the biggest Rolodex, who has the best business sense? You know, who's going to help you when there's management turmoil with great advice? That's what you need to look for. It's the individual, not the fund or who invested in that fund. So if you have a $20 million fund and you are um, call yourself an angel, how do you differ from a small VC? Well, we don't, have, we don't take any money from institutional investors who then have other investors that they answer to. Mm -hmm. So super angels are also what I would call super fiduciaries. You know, they, they have institutional money that also has uh, investors watching them. You know, there's three pairs of eyes watching your money. Um, and I personally think that takes your eye off the ball. All I want to do is help entrepreneurs. I, I, I don't want to be a fiduciary. So with SV Angel, it's a very unique relationship, but I have the best of both worlds. But that's, that doesn't occur very often. Well, you said something um, that I think is worth noting uh, about the way you describe your fund, sort of friends and family, uh, as opposed to institutional investors. And um, there it turns out there are people in the world who don't have friends and family who can support them. 
And uh, one of the things that I think is a, is a hallmark of Ron Conway is that you treat your, uh, your uh, entrepreneurs as if they're friends and family. And I know that's something they appreciate. Uh, so let's, let's just spend one more minute on the, on the angel community because uh, it's changed a lot in the last 15 years. You described sort of what it is now. Um, how do you see this, this moving on? And one of the things that seems to have happened is that some of the VCs have pulled out of the early stage funding, which is uh, where you are. And do you see this continuing like this, or do you expect that to change over the next five, ten years? Well, I, I think it's ever-evolving. Uh, what I like about it is there's more people investing, which says more companies get started, which means there's more innovation in Silicon Valley or elsewhere in the United States. And, uh, you know, I, I really do believe that Silicon Valley must live up to its legacy and be the most innovative place on Earth. And that's part of the reason I do this. The fact that there's, there's more funding sources, say there's going to be more great companies and more great ideas funded, which says we will dominate um, in, in technology. Uh, a lot of the VCs, though, most of the VCs that I know on Sand Hill Road want to invest at the seed stage and do invest in the seed, at the seed stage. And it's a misnomer that they don't. KP and Sequoia make and, and, and benchmark these firms when they have conviction about an entrepreneur. They will invest 100, 150 and then go, go to the next level. The problem with that is if they don't invest in the Series A or B round, there's a stigma on, oh, well, why didn't Sequoia invest in the next round? And it actually makes it harder for the entrepreneur to raise money because everyone says, well, why isn't Sequoia investing? Uh, and that's why you don't see a lot of entrepreneurs doing that. Um, but as far as the super angels, uh, I mean, the number of super angels or micro VCs out there in, in the last couple of years has been doubling or tripling every year. And I view that as a good thing for the ecosystem. Oh. One of the things that uh, I know everybody in the audience wants to know more about, and so let's turn to that now, is advice for, for uh, aspiring entrepreneurs. And, and uh, we've covered a little bit about technology. We've covered a little bit about your philosophy. Um, by the way, I'm assuming that from what you just said that you don't invest in second and third rounds. Is that true? We typically do not. So you avoid the question However, of why did you not invest? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we avoid that. And, and in our case, when you're investing as an angel, you usually don't get asked anyway. But, you know, two exceptions would be I invested in follow-on follow rounds of AdMob uh, and Twitter. I think those would be vivid examples of companies that were far enough along that, you know, a shrink would say, are you crazy, you know? <laughs> not to take your pro rata in those types of companies. But in general, we don't because, because I'd rather spend all of my money investing in three entrepreneurs starting a new co. That's what I enjoy. You know, just writing another check for AdMob on Twitter, yes, it puts money in the bank. The reason I do it, it puts money in the bank so I can go invest in more startups. 
Uh, but that act itself is not as exciting as investing in a brand new raw startup. So thank you for that. So let's, let's turn now to advice uh, for aspiring entrepreneurs who, who um, think they're at the stage where they should be um, raising some money. And so let's start with when in the evolution of an idea or an opportunity do you think an entrepreneur ought to approach an angel? How far along do they need to be, and, and um, uh, what advice would you give them on that? Well, my advice is to bootstrap as long as you possibly can. And there are a lot of companies where the entrepreneur bootstraps it all the way to profitability. Uh, let's use Michael Arrington as an example, TechCrunch. Everyone must know Michael Arrington at TechCrunch. He is a bootstrap entrepreneur. He started TechCrunch and never, ever took a nickel and sold it to AOL uh, a month ago for a lot of money. I mean, he's a wealthy person now. That is the best scenario. Now, how did he do that? He got quick traction and he monetized it quickly enough and he was able to hire enough people and always make a profit. So how does that translate here? Um, you know, try and bootstrap as long as you possibly can and try and get some traction that you can show investors so that you do get multiple investors bidding on your company and you can get a higher valuation <laughs> so you don't get diluted as much. So the best case uh, and Michael Arrington is the exception, not the rule. Most companies do have to go out and get funded. But if you can get funded where you have written the initial program and you can show some traction, i.e. there's X thousands of users, that's much easier than getting funded with, you know, here's an executive summary. And you need a good executive summary regardless. Here's a great executive summary, but the code is half done. We're going to go to beta in six months, but we have five people and we can't bootstrap it anymore. That company, you know, is not going to get an optimal valuation. So the longer you can bootstrap, get the program finished, uh, release it, you know, don't procrastinate. Google, the father of you know, release products to beta and iterate, iterate, iterate. I'm a huge believer in that now. We still have very prestigious companies who don't do that. They want to wait till it's perfect and then release it. And I happen to disagree with that. Um, so, and that's why, you know, companies are becoming more successful is, is Google is the one who took the stigma off of releasing beta software. But get the product out there, get traction, and then raise money. That's, that's the optimal crossover. And, and when, when you've done that, gone as far as you can, then would you suggest they try to find an angel or try to go to the VC community? Well, most people at what, that... What are, what, are the, what are the conditions under which you would go to an angel versus a VC? Uh, I, it's all about the amount of traction you have. 
So there's no doubt in my mind that if you can get funded by KP Sequoia XL Benchmark Greylock right out of the gate, that is a better thing for your company. But those, those VCs are going to want to see more proof points. They're going to want to see you know, a business model of some sort, uh, although they didn't on Google, but the product was so spectacular it, it overcame that. Uh, and they're going to want to see user traction and huge growth. So if you, if, if you're, if you go from, uh, you know, Facebook had a tiny amount of angel financing. So maybe if, if you can just forget that that happened, that Peter Thiel put in a little bit of money with a few others. Um, Facebook, Excel came in and bid against the Washington Post six years ago. Um, and they, they had skyrocketing growth. And that allowed them to go directly to the VC community and get an $80 million valuation. It was like unheard of. But they had proof points. And everyone knew that you could advertise to that audience. Um, so, so if you can't leapfrog to the, v, to the VC, for sure you should go and find the highest quality value-added angel who's going to open up their Rolodex to, to finish rounding out the angel syndicate because we invest like 100 to 200K. Most companies raise a million to start or a half a million. So no matter what, you need a syndicate of angels, not just one angel. And so the lead angel better go get other great angels to invest because that sets the pedigree f for your company from day one onward. So if you can get four high pedigree angels to invest, you're already a hot company. But they're not going to invest unless you've got some market traction. You know, the product's up and running and, and, and you've got some amount of growth. The lifeblood of Silicon Valley is growth. You know, how we pick our market segments, anything that grows at a couple of thousand percent a year, that's a market I want to be in, as long as it's in the internet. There's nothing, we don't do any market research. It's all about growth. We love growth. It's the lifeblood of the valley. So if you show any investor growth, they're going to give you money. Ron, thank you for those insights. I think we'll open it up to the audience to see if there are any questions out there. Yeah, we're sorry about keeping you from the World Series. <laughs> so right here. Are you still investing exclusively in Internet companies, or are you looking at branching out in the near future to other industries? Uh, we're exclusively Internet, and we're sector-focused right now on, on what we call real-time, which, which is a lot of companies, believe me. It's anything where users are spontaneously contributing content to the web. So, you know, any... Um, any QA sites, uh, any content sites, uh, the flash sales space, these are all uh, real-time companies, especially Twitter. It would be the flagship company of real-time data. But I can tell you if you have an Internet-based company, um, sometimes they deviate from that particular 
segment. So yeah, we will still look, but you know, probably seventy-five percent of our investments are a hundred percent of our investments are in the internet. Seventy-five percent are are in this strategy around real-time data, and that's because it, it because of the growth. Second, what are a couple of um, what are a couple of investments that you overlooked and were very successful, and what could have the entrepreneurs said to convince you to invest? Uh, the the most famous is Salesforce.com. Mark Benioff reminds me every time he sees me. Um, it, it was it was right in 1999 when the when we believed the market was going to crater and it did crater, and we couldn't agree on the valuation. So the only thing he could have said was, "Okay, I'll let you invest cheaper." And at the time, he had plenty of investors, and so he didn't let us do that. If we're starting from zero and we want to be you in about 20 years, what are the kind of things that we need to get right? Well, for sure, I would go get an operating job in a company. Uh, you know, I, I co-founded Altos Computer, and then after that, that was a 10-year stint. Then I went and, and acquired a company in the software space. That was a five-year stint. I did not like being an operator, but it gave me very valuable experience. I don't tell an entrepreneur anything that I haven't done myself. And it was, I'll say, you need to fire that person. And they'll say, wow, that's pretty harsh. Well, no, no, no. I, I, I have fired hundreds of people in my career. It's not easy, but you gotta, you got to be decisive. Um, so I'd, I'd get an operating job, and then... Uh, once you get a, a big enough bucket of money, start angel investing. But angel invest, you know, with a syndicate that you enjoy working with. And, and I, I would find, you know, if you're technical, find someone who's a good marketeer so that, so that your little fund is well-rounded. Social media is a huge space today. And uh, David Lee and I are, are the, the old farts of, of angel investors. We have three people who are 25 or younger, and we couldn't do effective due diligence today on most of these social media companies without that team. So whatever segment you're going after, make sure you have you know, the, the right people to help you do the due diligence. Great deal flow, great due diligence equals a good portfolio. And I laugh at these 25-year-olds that we have, one of whom is my son, because in five years, they'll be stale. We will have to go, if social media is still a, a very huge, high-growth sector, and I think it probably will be, in five years, we'll have to go find a 20-year-old and say, tell us what this is. Because I, I mean, I, I, everyone probably knows I don't use these services, but I understand the dynamic of the services. And, and it's, I'm getting all that data from 25 year olds. So let me just go back to something you said earlier, and I'm, I'm going to paraphrase what you said. It has to do with the personal attributes that have made you successful. And you said something about aggressively questioning people, being persistent. So any other uh, personal attributes that you think the young man out there who wants to be in your shoes 
should. Uh, uh, well, I, I, you know, I would be decisive. Uh, w w when you are an angel investor, you know, trust your gut. You know, we invest in in the entrepreneur first and the idea second, and the idea second by a long shot. It's all about the chemistry we're going to have with that entrepreneur because the ideas all morph a lot. So you need to be, you would need to become a good judge of people, so to speak. And that's, I've been doing, after investing in 500 companies and, uh, you know, talking to 10 per investment, that's 5,000. I've talked to way over 5,000 entrepreneurs. So within 10 minutes, I have a real feel of, I think that's going to be a great entrepreneur and we're investing and I don't care, I don't care what the idea is. That's the point you, if you want to be like me, that's the point you want to get to. It's a lot of it's intuitive about the people. So one more, just pushing you on this one more time, Ron. You said uh, deal flow is the key thing to get. So take yourself back to, was it 1997, or when you started your first angel fund? How did you begin to get deal flow? Well, uh, uh, from 94 to 97, 98, okay. Ben Rosen, who was then the chairman of Compaq and I, had done about 40 or 50 investments together. And Ask Jeeves was one of them. And we actually sat in the board meetings and and uh, turn them into business development sessions. It's the only time we would participate because we said, hey, this is a great idea, but unless we go get, you know, distribution deals with these eight publishers, we're not going anywhere, and we went and assigned those. So we got, a, we got this great reputation established where all the Ask Jeeves team, when their friends would say, hey, I'm going to start a company, they would go, hey, that Rosen and Conway were really helpful. You ought to go talk to them. And then when we raised our funds in 98-99, we went to Mark Andreessen, Jeff Skull, PRO Mediar, the founders of Yahoo, eBay. Those were the investors in those 98-99 funds. They had just become wealthy. And I said, why don't you invest in the next generation of the Internet? You're busy at your jobs, but you're going to get lots of deal flow, Mark Andreessen, and you're busy building Netscape. Refer that deal flow to us. We'll make sure, even if we don't invest, we'll try and get them funded elsewhere. So we, we really like helping the ecosystem. When we turn somebody down, many times we'll say, hey, go try that angel, because we think they will be excited about your company and your sector. Right back there. How do you feel about ideas or companies that could be easily replicated by large companies and maybe targeting to be bought out? Like when people come to you and say, well, and you say, I hear a lot like, well, what's stopping Google from doing this in a second or something like that? Well, um, so companies in a cluttered space, <laughs> depends how cluttered the space is. Uh, I think wellness today and uh, photos. There's two spaces that when somebody says that to me, I say, my God, I can recite 50 companies in that space. Now, we still listen to it, but we think those are pretty cluttered. So we'll want to hear more about it. The, the, 
but will probably most likely turn them down. The exam, the best, so a better example would be, I can think of five companies in the space, but it's an interesting space, but there is no intellectual property barrier to entry. Then I'll look to the entrepreneur, how fast can you execute? How fast can you make a decision? How fast can you hire a team? And we will tell the entrepreneur, do you know you're in an execution play? This space is cluttered. There's these five people. Tell us how you can out-execute those other four companies. And there always is an entrepreneur who says, here's my angle. And I say, wow, you will probably execute best. Therefore, you'll win because these are huge spaces. Facebook had plenty of competition, but they executed. So you, you look for the, for the one that, that, that will execute. The, the group uh, texting space right now today is hot as hell. There's four companies going after it. We've made a bet, and it is an execution play. It, it, so they're very vivid examples of very exciting spaces that fit your example perfectly, and it's all about executing. On, on a cluttered space, it has a very large company in it, let's say a Google, or Google could enter it. Um, well, Google could enter it as almost every company these days. So, so what kinds, of, Facebook, what kinds yeah. of questions do you ask the entrepreneur in that case? Uh, it depends what segment that they're going after. I mean, we would get really deep about if they're going after Google or Facebook I'm hoping there is some intellectual property advantage if it's just an execution play going after Google or Facebook we probably won't invest uh, but if they have intellectual property that's very unique then we'll take a look and invest uh, we invested several years ago in a company called Bleco that just got launched today it's in every news media outlet. Um, and it's a search company, but I think it's going after a segment of search. And it has very deep intellectual property, and that's what we think that advantage is. Back there. Um, what's, how long do you typically advise your companies? Um, what type of runways do you typically advise them to take? before they get to their um, full Series A? And do you see your model changing as the early stage uh, sort of Series A venture industry shrinks? Um, so I, I'm not sure, tell me if I'm answering this because I'm not sure I even have the question right. But we, we, the companies usually raise a half a million to a million in the angel round. That should get them, yeah, they, there's gotta be something to show. So hopefully thousands and thousands of users and maybe some monetization. And you want to, depending on where your traction is, if you have lots of traction, you can raise money a little slower. If you don't have a lot of traction, four to five months before you're out of money, you better start raising that next round or open the angel round at the last valuation. Is that... question for you is, what are some of the more promising monetization models that you have seen? Uh, what are some of the more promising monetization models? Because I'm not sure the mic w was working. Um, well, here's a space that we didn't, 
get into. We're in a few startups that are in it now. But the flash sales slash flash marketing space, these are phenomenal monetization schemes. Um, and I mean schemes in a positive vent. Guilt Group and Groupon are fascinating companies led by defining entrepreneurs. Um, I should have answered when I said Salesforce.com, I should have said Guilt Group. I was offered to invest in Guilt Group and didn't. And, and that, that is a phenomenal company with a phenomenal monetization model. Twitter is going to end up uh, with promoted tweets. I think that's going to be a phenomenal monetization model. Uh, Facebook with traditional ads is a phenomenal uh, monetization model. But if you look at the, the flash sales space, all kinds of different tweaks of the monetization are taking place in that space, and it's really early days. We haven't seen half of the creativity on how they're going to monetize. Hi, doesn't work. Uh, can you tell us about what you think are the hot trends at the moment, and what you see are the, are the hot spaces we should look into, especially? Well, uh, I just talked about flash marketing, uh, mobile. It, mobile overall is monstrous. I mean, computing is moving from the computer to the mobile device in every way, shape, or form. Gaming is, is massive growth. Anything that's location-based is massive growth. And location-based, uh, you know, with commerce in it, which is where Foursquare for sure is going to go. And then there's a brand new space that we're looking at right now, uh, heard first at Stanford, O2O, online to offline. Uh, there's a company, and two examples, there's a company called Shopkick, which uh, you walk into a store that has an LBS device, it knows you're in the store, and as you're walking down the aisles, it delivers information about what's in that aisle, and coupons and specials uh, that, that allow for instant monetization. And that's a, a, a KP Greylock-backed uh, company. And, and we're, we're lucky enough to be investors as well. And then a company called Milo, which uh, uh, gathers inventory of all the local stores around here, big and small. So you would, you would go to Milo uh, because people, you know, once you decide what you're going to buy, you just want to know it's there when you go to the store. You don't want to drive there for nothing. Uh, you, you see that they have inventory, you reserve it, you drive over and you pick it up. That's just two examples of what I would call online to offline. <laughs> this is going to be another multi-billion dollar web opportunity. A lot of us have uh, business backgrounds um, and we're thinking about lots of different ideas. Do you think we should be more concerned about the idea or the team? Uh, I would be much more concerned about finding the right co-founders and then getting the right co-founders to agree to the company, the market, the strategy. It's all about the team. Now that's just my bias. You know, Don Valentine at Sequoia spoke here somewhere at Stanford a month ago. I'm dying to hear it. In this room? Yes. In this chair? 
Good, I love that. Don, Val Don Valentine was the VC who invested in Altos Computer, the company that I co-founded that went public in 1982. Uh, and he's a rock star. He invests... And in a panel a week ago, I said, yes, I disagree. Oh, Y Combinator Startup School. I said, yes, I disagree with Don Valentine. Don says the size of the market determines how excited he gets. So I just don't want to mislead anybody here. This is, this is the criteria I use. There are other angels, many other angels out there, where it's all about the idea. And, hey, the team, yeah, well, let's hope we can work with the team. And then you got the Don Valentine, which is it's all about the market size that they're going after. One last, one last question. Brief. Uh, we have a last question. Up there. <clears throat> Hi. Um, I was just wondering, we, we hear a lot about the big successes, and we know there are a lot of companies that never make it. And I'm just wondering how many companies end up kind of in, the, in your portfolio, in the middle of the road where they may have trouble attracting VC funds, but they have cash flows enough to sustain themselves? And if there is a critical mass there, when do you decide to engage or disengage? If you have companies in your portfolio that are humming along, but they're never going to be the next Google, well, we you only have so many hours in the day. We never disengage. Um, we become less active because the company doesn't need our help. But 40% uh, uh, of the companies we invest in today will go out of business. So that's why I'm saying anyone who has the guts to start a company, I hope they all get funded because entrepreneurs should know 40% of you are going to fail. You, re you return no money. Now, that's a lot better because I'm an optimist. That's a lot better than when the bubble burst in 78% failure rate. So... Um, but but the, the, the companies in the middle where they're not hits, that's what M&A is for. 80% of our liquidity events will be via M&A. There is nothing wrong with M&A. Ask Omar Hamoy, who sold AdMob to Google for $700 million, or the Zappos founders, $2 billion to Amazon. Um, and YouTube, you know, seven, uh, $1.6 to to Google. There's nothing wrong with M&A. Um, so those companies should be very proud of themselves, especially if they have positive cash flow and say, hey, we're not going to go public, but let's merge into another company. Let's even merge into a private company if we have to and reinvent ourselves. But M&A is the vast majority of liquidity events for startups. And going into it, you should absolutely realize that and not be embarrassed about it. It's awesome. <laughs> you know, going public is not easy. So, Ron, I think we have to make that the last question. Thank you very much for coming and sharing your insights. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.